pray. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, dear most holy, ever presently, Father. Dear most holy, ever presently, Father, I just thank you again for another day to serve, honor, and glorify your name. Lord, um, it's such a blessing to be here each and every Sunday that we can just sit and just uh, listen to your word, Father. Lord, we just thank you for your son, Jesus, who so willingly went to that cross to bleed and die not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, Father. Thank you for a way to get to you through your son, Jesus, who is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to you, Father, except through him. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, our resident tutor, Father. I pray for Alan this morning as... um, we continue on the lessons uh, on angels and uh, demonology, Father. Just help us to quiet our hearts and listen to what you have to speak to us uh, today. Lord, we love you so much, and you are so sovereign. Lord, as we um, offer our prayers up to you each and every day, as we soak in your word, Father, and as it changes our lives, for I do ask the things all in your holy precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with the organization of angels. If we go back and look at their organization. Um, In the Bible, we are introduced to a couple of angels by name. Actually, how many angels are mentioned by name in the Bible? Three. You've got to remember, Lucifer is one of those, all right? Yeah, that's a good trick. Lucifer is one of those, all right? But we got Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, of course. Michael is the archangel. He seems to be the leader of the armies of God. Um, He's a very prominent angel in the Bible. Um, We also have Gabriel. His name means the Mighty One of God. He appears to be the messenger angel. He's the one, of course, that appeared to Daniel um, several times. He appeared to Mary and Joseph. Um, He seems to be the one who communicates a special message to God's people. Um, And then we have another group of angels called the cherubim. We're first introduced to those in Ezekiel chapter 1. Actually, we're introduced to them back in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Moses Moses got cast out of the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, um, who did God set at the head of the garden to keep them out? Two cherubim with flaming swords to keep them out of the Garden of Eden. We have their description in Ezekiel 1, 4 through 26. And I think poor Ezekiel is just trying to find words to describe these creatures. They are amazing creatures. They look like a man, but they have four wings. Each one of them has four faces. Their feet are like calves' hooves. They look like burning torches and full of eyes. What's the idea of being full of eyes? What's that? They can see everything. They're there. Eyes mean two things in um, most apocalyptic. You know what apocalyptic literature is? Highly figurative literature, okay? And seen in visions and dreams. Um, Eyes usually mean two things. One is vision, sight. They can see things. The second one is intelligence or knowledge. Both of those things are there. Um, They can see all the way around them. They're full of eyes. Um, Their duties... What were the duties of the cherubim? And I think this is where we left off. One, the first duty was to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why is that? Why was Adam and Eve had to stay out of the garden? They had fallen and God did not want them to have access to what? The tree of life. So God set two cherubim at the head of the garden. Evidently there was an entrance to the garden. And uh, they could not get back into the garden. Okay? 
Cherubim evidently are the guardians of the holiness of God. They protect us from God. All right? They don't protect God from us. They protect us from God. All right? We can't get, you can only get so close to God. And the cherubim keep you away. Um, their likeness was on the mercy seat. Remember when, Dan, when Moses made the mercy seat and the gold top, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim with outstretched wings. And that was the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest came in once a year and put the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. Um, they're guardians of the throne of God. You see this in Ezekiel 1, 4-26. Um, and by the way, Lucifer was one of the cherub. How do you know that? Well, Ezekiel 28:14 said he was the anointed cherub who covers. Um, so right now we see four creatures. There used to be five. One of them was Lucifer who was the top cherub. He was the top angel. And we're going to read a lot more about him when we get to the section on Satan. Um, there's another group of angels we read of called the seraphim. These means burning ones. Um, Isaiah 6, 1-7, we see the, cherub, the seraphim. Um, the vision of Isaiah, when the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lying lifted up. And the glory of His throne filled the temple. And you see these burning ones that fly around the throne of God. Um, these may be ser- uh, a different kind of cherubim. We don't know. We just know that they're called seraphim, burning ones. And what do they do? They do the same thing that the cherubim do. They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. They are guardians of the holiness of God. They're around the throne of God. In Revelation 4, 6 through 8, and uh, 5, 8, and a couple other times in the book of Revelation, we're introduced to four living creatures. John talks about four living creatures. Um, they look a lot like cherubim, except they are full of eyes and have six wings instead of four. All right. Now, this is interesting. When you look at the throne of God and you look at the angelic beings, there seems to be a, a, many different kinds. We're sort of seeing glimpses of different ones. Cherubim, four living creatures, seraphim. You know, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're told. Now, we're not told much more than that, other than there are these angelic beings that are guardians of the throne of God. Um, the four living creatures, interestingly, appear to be the head of the worship team in heaven. They're sort of the worship leaders in heaven. Because every time you see um, worship in, the, in heaven, in Revelation, you've got the four living creatures involved there. If you remember, in the first part of Revelation 4, they're around the throne... And then um, when the 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the throne, you have the four living creatures um, participating in that. And in fact, one of the four living creatures talks to John and explains some things to him. Um, So these are angelic beings that guard the throne of God. They are around the throne of God. They protect creation creation from God. All right. And why is that? Why does God need to be guarded like that? Or why do we need to be kept away from God? Because we're sinners. Because we're sinners and He isn't. We're sinful. He's not. All right. And because of that, we need to keep our distance. All right. And and one of the things that I think we need to to understand, we we run a we walk a balance. Um, personally, and you know, when I look at my own life, I have to walk a balance between. God is my friend, because He is my friend, right? He's my Savior, but yet God is holy, and I'm not. And I've got to walk a balance between that. I can't go so far 
into thinking that God is so holy, I, I can't come into his presence, I can't pray, I can't do anything like that because he invites me in. But on the other hand, I don't want to make him such my friend that I forget that he's holy too. And that's something you have to keep in your mind as you worship God, as you pray, that God is holy, but God is your friend. And you've got to strike a balance between the two. Now, in the Old Testament, what was the emphasis on? Holiness. All right, That was the whole picture in the Old Testament. God had put up a barrier. Remember the tabernacle? There was a barrier. God was in the Holy of Holies, dwelling between the mercy, the cherubim on the mercy seat. That was where the Shekinah glory of God was. And only one person could go in there once a year as quickly as he could to get the blood in there and get out before he died. They had a bell on his waist and they had a rope on his foot in case he died and they could drag him out. Um, this was, God was making a point in the Old Testament. I'm holy, you're not. And in the New Testament, the wonderful thing that, that what it says in Hebrews is Christ went right into the holy place. He, he went right in there and we have access now to God. But we need to be careful not to take that too flippantly and take that too, you know, um, you know sort of treat God like a pal and a buddy because He's not. He's God. He's holy. He's pure. We're not. Yeah. I mean, in the Old Testament, we were told to fear God. And people say, well, you know, I don't fear God. He's sort of like a big, cuddly teddy bear. You know, God's not a big, cuddly teddy bear. God is holy. Pardon? No. God is holy. And even as a believer, although we have free and full access to the throne room of God, we just go, go trotting in there any way we want, right? You don't just go trotting in there and thinking, you know, oh, well, God's glad to see me. You know, I finally showed up. You know, that, that's, that's, not the way to, that's not the way to approach God. You approach God with fear reverence. and reverence. Yep. Um, he is my friend, but he's God as well. And in the Old Testament, we see this emphasis on God being holy, separate from sinners. And there's a way back to God, but you come on his terms, not your terms. I'm sorry. Yeah. About the six wings, that's also Isaiah 6 2. The seraphim mm-hmm. have six wings. Yeah, and so most likely the four living creature may be the seraphim. All right? The burning ones. All right? Around the throne of God. And the cherub is part of the seraphim? We're not told. I mean, we, we see two sets. We see the seraphim, we see the cherubim. Um, one has six wings, one has four. Other than that, you know, we'll find out when we get there what it's like. Yeah, we'll find out. Here's, here's the point, though. Evidently, there is an organization to the angelic beings. You've got seraphim, you've got cherubim, you've got messenger angels. You know, th- there is an organizational structure there. We don't know all the particulars of that, but there are organizational structures. Yeah, you got Uriel and all these other ones. It, it's really, um, it's it's really uh, the extra biblical literature has a lot of that. If you remember back when we studied bibliology, there's those extra canonical, or not yeah deuterocanonical. Um, in the apocrypha, there's a couple of angels, other angels mentioned by name. I think Uriel is one of them, if I remember right. Um, that's where they come up with them. 
the bottom line is we don't know the, the only three angels we know the names of are Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. That's the three we know. Because that's what the Bible tells us. The rest of them, there may be one named Uriel. We don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't know. All right. Um, what I do is I say, well, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible gives us three names. Other than that, it doesn't tell us about their organization. Or, or their, you know, their names. I mean. well, that's all right. That's all right. Ask any question you want. Hopefully I'll have an answer. We'll see, you know. Um, angels appear to have ranks. How do we know that? Well, when we read Ephesians 1, Colossians, and 1 Peter, um, it talks about principalities, powers, might, dominions. Um, that appears to be different organizational rankings of angels. Not only the holy angels, but the unholy angels as well. The fact that Michael leads the armies of heaven would tell you there's some kind of organizational structure there. All right, exactly what that structure is and exactly how many levels. And we don't know any of that. But there is an organizational structure to the angelic beings. All right? Ephesians 6 has those as well. Where it talks about our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Demonic forces. It could be holy angels as well. Angels are created with various rankings, with various duties. I mean, are we all going to be doing the same thing in heaven? Probably not. Um, But we're, we're not told specifically how all of that you know, how many levels, the org structure. We don't have an org chart in the Bible of how they're ranked. We know that Michael evidently is the top angel, but other than that, we, we don't know how they're ranked or what they do. Yeah. Um, no, they'll have different duties. That's the beauty of Revelation 21 and 22. You know, there comes a time when we'll be able to see God face to face. You ever think about that one? Where there is not that barrier where we're perfect and holy. And that, that blows my mind. Because it says He will be among them and be their people and walk among with them. And He'll tabernacle with them. That's the fun. He, he's going to be with us. We're not going to have this barrier that, that exists right now. I would think there would still be some sort of a fear factor involved there. Oh, yeah, there is. I mean, God, we will respect God and, and love God for who He is, but there will not be the fear of, I am not holy, He is holy, because we'll all be holy, and we won't be able to follow it up. That's the best thing about it, is you're not going to be able to blow it that's in eternity future. That's all I do here. I yeah, that's all you do. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be atypical. You know, when you get there, you're not going to be able to sin. That's... That's the wonderful thing about it. We're not going to be able to follow it up. Um, you know, you're, you're, I can't get my head around that. That I'm going to be able to see God face to face and talk to Him face to face and walk with Him, you know, and have that relationship with Him and not have to confess my sins all of the time. You know, there's no sin to confess. Um, it's, it'll be a wonderful thing. All we do know is that. Angelic beings do have an organizational structure. Now, when we talk about demons, we're given a hint of this also in, in the book of Daniel, where it talks about the prince of Persia. And evidently, there are some kind of demonic forces behind the various world kingdoms. We, we get that by implication from the text. 
not only from Daniel, but also from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, God is talking about the king of Babylon, but addresses him as Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28, he's talking about the king of Tyre, but he's addressing him as Lucifer. So what we see is there apparently is some kind of organizational um, structure behind the, and the demonic forces that are behind the world powers. But beyond that, we just, we're not sure. And one of the things we need to be careful of, we go into this kind of think about, we've got territorial demons and demons over Illyria and demons over my block and over my home. That's not really what, that, the Bible doesn't talk about that. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't list that out. It does not mean that there are not demonic forces present and doing things, but we don't know what they're up to. We don't know how they're working. We just know that they're working. That's a good question. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us. It says, if you see God, you die. Yeah, if you see God, you'll die. Now, evidently, what that is referring to is the physical, our physical bodies, the bodies we have, cannot stand the full blaze of God's brilliant glory. How physically that works out? Is He radioactive? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. All right? But it does say that we can't. In our physical form, our current physical form, body we have now, we cannot stand in the glorified presence of God. Now, can we in our in spirit form? Well, yeah, Isaiah did, right? I mean, Isaiah was in heaven. He was not physically there. His spirit was there. John, um, in the book of John, uh, Revelation saw Christ, um, but he was not in his physical body. Um, so that, we don't know. We're just told... Um, yeah, what's going to happen to that sinful body is you're going to get it exchanged for a glorified one. Okay. All right. That's, that's good enough. Yeah. I just wanted to add to because it, um, I remember it saying in there that man has to escape the God because supposedly according to the reading Moses. Yeah, you cannot see the face of God. And, and because Moses was in his physical body. Right. All right. Moses did not see the full blaze of God's blinding glory. All right? We don't know much beyond that. All right? And Moses was a special case. But God is saying, you cannot see me in all my glory and live. He had to veil the glory. All right? So to compound that issue, we have to take into consideration the fact that God the Father is spirit and not a physical entity. Right. And whenever you see the throne of God, what do you see in heaven? We see Christ on the throne. Well, we see Christ on the throne, but what, what is the manifestation of the throne of God? Light. Blinding, brilliant glory. The Shekinah glory. Just blinding light. You'll find out when you get to heaven. Alright? Well, one way in which you'll walk among us is How? Christ, right? I mean, Christ is God, right? Trinity, He's God. Yeah.
Yeah. Blinded by the light. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant light beyond our comprehension to, to understand. It's the blaze of God's glory. Yeah. A couple of things. One about that. One about a separate thing. Uh, and that is, the best analogy I've always come up with is if a person in the bright sun of the noonday tries to stare into the sun... You know what happens. It's blinding, it's overwhelming, and multiply that times exponentially. And you can sort of think, well, if God is so much more than that, of course it would be impossible to. And the other thing I wanted to say about the, you know, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul went to heaven. He doesn't know whether he was in the body or out, and that sort of thing, and how he was having difficulty explaining the awesomeness of it. And uh, so, not only was Enoch, not only was Moses, but um, Paul also had that experience. Yeah. But even then, there was a veiling of the glory. Of course. Yeah. All right. Um, how about the Mount of Transfiguration? Christ appeared glorified, but did he appear in his fully glorified form? Well, no, because he had three guys walk down from the mountain. All right, There was a veiling. Even then, there was a veiling of that glory. In heaven, there is the full glory of God. It's in an, an unveiled form. And the Bible says that no man can see God and live. That's all we know. All right, No man can see God in your fallen state with your form right now. If God appeared right here in his fully glorified form, we would all die. All right? It's just a, we would all die. Because he is brilliant, we're not. He's he's in a light unapproachable, light unapproachable. Um, one of the things that people talk a lot about are guardian angels. Some say, well, some people have guardian angels, and they're pretty busy for them. And you know, some mothers say, boy, if my son or daughter didn't have a guardian angel, they'd be dead because all the trouble they get into. Um, it's inferred. The, the guardian angel concept is inferred from Matthew eighteen ten. In Matthew eighteen ten. It talks about if anyone offend one of these little ones who would believe in me. It talks about their angels always behold the face of God. And the, and the inference there is that you know, the little ones, children, have a, a guardian angel, an angel that is watching over them. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us whether we have a guardian angel or not. Now, here's, now, before we go too far the other way, do angels protect us? Sure, we don't know how, but they, they're, they're there. Um, I think it's going to be interesting when we get to heaven and find out all of the different ways in which we were protected by God through the use of angelic beings. I mean, every once in a while you hear stories from the mission field where you have angelic protection. Um, but do we all have an angel assigned to us that you know, if somehow we were able to see the spirit realm, we'd each have an angel standing behind us, keeping an eye on us? Um, 
I don't think the Bible tells us that, although it does say that angels are ministers for those who shall be heirs of salvation, right? So how is that going to, how's that all work out? We don't know. We do know that God uses angels to protect us. Now, since God is sovereign, does He technically need an angel to protect us? No, He doesn't technically need one. But God does use angelic protection. Um, think about some examples in the Bible where there's angelic protection. We talk about um, what is Elijah and Gehazi. Remember where they're surrounded by the Syrian army and they go out the door and Gehazi's freaking out and Elijah says, Lord, open his eyes and let him see what we have. And what do you see? See the armies of heaven around them. Um, you also have the one in Joshua, right? Where Joshua is given a vision of the armies of heaven right there. Um, so are angels busy? Are they um, protecting us? Are they, are they ministering to us in ways we don't understand? Sure they are. Um, but do we all have a guardian angel that follows us around and is assigned to us? The Bible doesn't really say that. It does say that they do protect us though. Do you understand the balance we're trying to get at there? All right. Now, maybe there are guardian angels, we, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't specifically say that. All right. It does say that they are ministers for those who shall be heirs of salvation. Um, they ministered to Elijah, remember, when he was running from Jezebel. Um, so they're active. And I think they're may, they may be, if you, know, if you want to err on a side on this, they're probably more active than you would give them credit for. We just don't know all the details of how that works out. Yeah. Because Satan is the copycat, tries to tries to do what God does and fool people and he's doing a good job of that. He does have, as you know, familiar spirits on his side, mm-hmm. which people who believe in, you know, seances and being able to talk to your dearly departed so and so, uh, they actually are hearing the voice of the familiar spirit. Yeah. So I'm I I came to the conclusion that Okay, if I were foolish enough to want to talk to dearly departed so-and-so and I go to a medium and, you know, I hear a voice that sounds just like said person, but it's really a familiar spirit, then the opposite of that is guardian angels from the Lord. I have personal awareness of certain situations where angels did minister to some people that I knew that otherwise uh, the reason the reason I know it was angels is because after the ministry, the help, the, the, the support that was needed at that point was done, the person looked around for that person and there was I mean, they just vanished. They weren't they weren't there anymore. Yeah, we we want to be careful when we when we talk about this to not go too far one way and say there's no guardian angels, there's no angelic help. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. There's definitely angelic help. But on the other hand, we can't say that we each have an angel assigned to us whose sole duty is to... Now, you keep an eye out for that one. And they follow us around wherever we're going. and There's no biblical support for that. Okay, But God does use angels to, to minister to us. And we're going to talk about the demon part, you know, the, the familiar spirits. You know, if you open yourself to demonic forces, if you open yourself to that, you can become ensnared and enslaved. But see, here's the thing. What is Satan, what's Satan's big picture activity? What's he really want to do? Is he trying to get people to commit acts of sin? Is that really his, his reason for existence? 
No, it isn't. He doesn't need... Satan doesn't need to get you to commit sin. You do very well on your own. Alright? Satan's activity is not in committing sin. Satan's activity is in deception. That's what it's all about. It's about deception. Satan is behind the false religions of the world. Satan's behind the false religions of this age. Satan's behind the, the, the values of our world, right? That's the thing we fight against. We fight against the world. What's the world? The values of this world. What is the world value? Fame, fortune, money, sex, whatever. That's what Satan is behind. Um, he's not sending demons around, trailing you, trying to get you to commit an act of sin or, or something like that. That's not what he's busy doing. He's busy trying to deceive people. And he will deceive them. And uh, he's behind the false religions. That's, that's his activity. It's that of deception. Now, every once in a while, does he go after a high-profile Christian just to get them to try and sully the name of Christ? Sure he does. But why is he doing that? To deceive. It's all about deception. That's what Satan is the great deceiver. That's what he wants to do. And we're going to talk about that when we get to him. Understand, though, that we do have angels that protect us. They're there. We don't know what they do all the time. Sometimes we're protected by angels and we don't know what they did or how they did it. Or, and if we did, we'd probably be shocked that they would actually protect us. Um, but we don't know exactly what, what they do because we don't see them. We just know they're there. And we can thank God. That he, and God is... By the way, who do you go to? Do you go to God or do you go to your angel for help? You go to God for help. Okay, God is the one that takes care of this. He may use angels to do that, but it's God that you go to. God is the one who's our protector. Yeah. The, the, the comment. Yeah, I mean, you got to understand how the angels operate in heaven. They're ready to do God's will. They're watching God. They're watching God. And they're, 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 they're on call 24 by 7. And at, at the least, you know, the least indication from God, they're off. All right? To do whatever it is that God bids them to do. Um, and they, they take care of us. They take care of us. Um, what is the ministry of the angels? What do they Basically, what do angels do? What are their activities as we see in the Bible? And we're going to look at, um, look at this in terms of the people groups that they minister to. Well, in the Old Testament, who did they mainly minister to? Well, the nation of Israel, right? I mean, that was God's chosen people. Angels fought for Israel in Judges 5.20. What's that? Um, angels, if you, I'm not going to look up all these passages probably because we're not going to get through here. There's a couple of passages I want to look at in particular. Um, towards the end here. But uh, angels fought for Israel. Angels were on Israel's side. Now, who was in charge of the angels? God was, right? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, as called in the Bible. But uh, they fought for Israel. Um, they gave the law to Israel. They mediated the Old Covenant. How do you know that? Well, Acts 7.53 talks about that. And it's even hinted at in Hebrews chapter 13. What's the idea of being mediated by angels? When God gave the law to Moses, the angelic beings were there in the giving of the law. They saw that. They saw God giving the law to Israel. Um, in Revelation, they're going to seal the 144,000. Remember that? The 144,000, the angel goes forth to seal them. What does it mean to be sealed? 
Now, is that a visible thing necessarily for somebody to look at that person and see a little mark on their forehead? Not necessarily. Possibly it could be, but not necessarily. What does it mean to be sealed? Marked by God for what? Service and protection and ownership. This is my person. They are protected. I own them. There's another interesting uh, example of this sealing in Ezekiel, I think it's 7 or 8, one of those, where God calls an angel with an ink horn to come down and start at the start at the sanctuary and mark those who are true believers who sigh and mourn over the sin of Israel. And then he calls some other angels in and says, I want you to follow this one and whoever does not have the mark, I want you to kill them. And what you see there is a, is a God's sealing of His own. God knows who His own are, right? I mean, God, God's not mistaken. He knows who are truly believers and who are not. And during the tribulation time, the angels are going to be really busy during that time because of God's judgment falling. And they're going to seal the 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from every tribe, who are supernaturally protected by God and make it all the way through to the end of the tribulation. They're sealed in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. They're standing with Christ on Mount Zion at the end. They're protected by God through the tribulation. And nothing that Antichrist or Satan does can harm them because they are protected by God. Yes. They are they are 144,000 specially chosen men by God by Israelites. They're 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 Jews. And why do you know they're Jews? Well, it goes to all the trouble to list the tribes they're from. All right. So when when the Holy Spirit does something like that, you sort of have to just go with what He says. All right. Try to not read something into that. They're actual Jews. They're not the Jehovah Witnesses. All right, they're not that or some other cultic interpretation. They are Jews, and um, they are they are God's witnesses, specially chosen witnesses through the tribulation. They cannot be killed. They cannot be harmed, um, and they are preserved by God. They are protected by God through that time, and they make it all the way through to the end. Because in Revelation seven, they are sealed. In Revelation fourteen, they're standing on Mount Zion at the end. Um. They will regather faithful Israel. Matthew 24, 31 talks about when Christ comes back again. Remember the parable of the tares? What, is the, what do the angels do? They separate. They're the separators. What's going to happen when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation? The angelic forces, the angelic beings, will separate the wheat from the chaff. They'll separate the true from the false. Now, we can't do that. That's our problem. Because what will we do? We'll pull up a piece of wheat... Or we'll leave a tear. We can't tell. We don't see the halos on people's heads. Um, but the angels do. The angels know who are gods and who are not. And they're going to separate the two. And what's going to happen to the wheat? They're going to be gathered into the barn. They're going to go into the millennium. What's going to happen to the chaff? It's going to burn. That's, and that's a no-brainer picture of what? Hell. All right. They're going to gather... Um, Angels are very busy in God's judgment. Usually when God's judgment is falling, the angels are very busy in doing that. All right, and we're going to see that here in a little bit too. Their ministry to Christ, when Christ came, of course, to the, and was incarnated and became uh, one of us, uh, angels, angels did a lot of worshiping of Him. Um, Hebrews 1.6 and again, when he brings his firstborn in the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. 
What's the writer of Hebrews doing? The writer of Hebrews is trying to say, here, here's, here's the 20,000 foot view of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is trying to say, the old covenant is good, the new covenant is better. Okay? The old covenant had the angels, the new covenant has the son. The old covenant had Moses the servant, the new covenant has Christ the son. Alright? So, the old covenant was good, but it was temporary, the new covenant is permanent. Alright? The old covenant could cover sins for a short time, but what can the new covenant do? Take them away forever. Alright? And at the end of Hebrews, he says, you know, if you think it was bad under the old covenant, if you died under the, under the witness, or two or three witnesses, What's going to happen if you violate the new covenant that is mediated by Christ? You think it was bad in the old, it's worse than the new. The whole point of Hebrews is the, old, the new covenant is better than the old. And the writer starts out by saying, Christ is superior to angels. But what, to the, what angel did he ever say at any time today, you're my son, that they have a begotten me? None. Christ is the son, angels are not. Which, by the way, the, what did the Jehovah, anybody know the Jehovah Witness theology of Jesus is? He's Michael the angel. All right. Well, that Hebrews blows it right there. No, Jesus is not an angel. He is much better than the angels. He's the Son. In fact, not only is He the Son, but it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. So, not only is He the Son, He is God. And, of course, they don't like that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't. And many other cults do not like it as well. But Jesus is the Son. And the angels of God worship Him. All right. What does it mean to worship? It means to ascribe glory to, to recognize one for who they are, to reverence. And the angels worshipped him. Um, in Colossians 1.17, it says they were made by him and for him. What do you mean by that? It says in Colossians 1.17, nothing was created apart from Christ and everything was created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. All right? Christ is the creator He's the maker of all that there is. So who created the angels? Christ did. So they are servants of His. They were made by Him and for Him to do His bidding. Um, Yeah. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning of what? Time was the Word. The Word was there before time began. But what existed before time began? God. Nothing else. God. And then time begins with the creation of the universe. And Christ already was there prior to creation. He is God. Um, angelic beings predicted His birth. Not only did they appear to Mary, they appeared to Zacharias. They appeared to the shepherds, right? They, were, they predicted or, or um, talked about Christ's coming birth. They were the messengers of God. Um, they protected Him. Now go figure that one out. Did Christ... Technically, need protection. No, he's God, right? Uh, now, let's think about that. Was he? Was he? That's where you. That's where you go, and you just like uh, scratch your head for a long time and pull all your hair out. Yeah. Well, yeah. He became the God-man. So Christ was the God-man, but was he still God? Yes. yes. Did he have authority over Satan and his demons? Yes. yes. Because he, remember the maniac of gatherings, the demon said, don't cast us into the abyss. 
He had power over demons. He had power over Satan. In fact, we're going to look at this in Matthew chapter 12 it is. It talks about binding the strong man. Remember that? Well, all that means, all Christ is trying to do there is say, look, if you go into a house in those days, if you're going to rob a house, you've got to either wait for the guy not to be there, or if the guy is bigger than you, you've got to be able to tie him up. Right? So if I'm able to go in and spoil Satan's house, what does that imply about me and Satan? I'm stronger than he is. All right, that's what it's talking about. I can bind him. Christ is stronger than Satan. So, so that's one of those yes and no's. Yes, he was a little lower than angels in the sense that in his self-emptying, he positioned himself as a human being. No, in the sense that he is still eternal God, although he did not exercise the prerogatives of eternal God. And that's the kenosis we talked about back in Christology. Christ could not... Christ cannot not be God. He cannot say one day, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm tired of this God thing, I just think I'll give it up. He can't do that, because if he were to do that, the universe would go back to nothing. He is the one that brings, holds it all together. He cannot cease becoming God, but he did lay aside the prerogatives of his divine attributes. The prerogatives. Not the, he can't lay aside the attributes, but he can lay aside his prerogatives of exercising them, and that's what we see. Yeah, he was made lower in the sense of not in essence, but in his um, role. It's a, it's a role thing here. All right. When he set aside his practice, didn't he also kind of set aside the knowledge that came with it? Because he, when he talked yo. about those, about the intensity, yeah. he didn't know when the end. It's yo. Yeah. Huh? Yes, yes and no. no. All right, it's both. Yes, he did in the sense that he chose not to access that knowledge. No, in the sense that he did not, not have access to the knowledge. He could have known, Christ could know anything he wanted. He was omniscient God, but he laid aside. He chose not to. And, and I don't know how, that's the, that's the mystery of the hypostatic union that theologians have argued about for the last, you know, 2,000 years. How does that all work out? We don't know. The Bible does say, that although Christ was God, he did not hold on to the prerogatives of God. All right? He laid that voluntarily aside. He was still God. He was still the Creator God. He could not not be that. But there's a mystery there that we just don't fully sort out. We can't fully sort out. So was he lower than the angels in his role at the time? Yes, but not lower than the angels since he was not God because as God, he could do anything he wanted to. Okay, I'm sorry. I have one more question about that. That's all right. He had power over demons in his earthly form. Doesn't that also mean that conversely he, he could order angels around in his earthly form? Sure. So wouldn't that make him higher than the angels? No, he just didn't exercise that. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the mystery. When Christ became man, he took upon himself the form of what? In, 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 man, man. The form of a... Servant. servant. The form of a slave. The word there is slave, not servant. By the way, whenever you see servant in the Bible, cross it out and put a slave. That's what it means. It's a slave. That's what the Greek word means, slave. He did not take upon himself the form of a servant. He came, took upon the form, of a, the form of a slave. What's a slave do? And who is the master? God. Christ said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
All right. Did he could Christ have exercised his will? Yeah, but that was not his role at that time. He voluntarily set that aside. He became a man. And when he did that, he set aside his divine prerogatives. I mean, you know that because on the, on the cross he said, I could call 12 legions of angels. Did he have authority over the angels then? Sure he did. Because in his role, he was a servant. He was not the master. And he fully performed the duties of a servant, of a slave, of a slave. In fact, when Satan was something on the desert, mm-hmm. that, you know, they were up on the tower and showed him the kingdom and everything, and they said, go ahead and jump in your angels, you know, come and rescue Yeah. He was probably challenging his authority against God, mm-hmm. you know, going hand in hand that Jesus will do that in the love of God. Yeah, well, you know, that's what Psalm 91, 91 here says, that he was, the angels will protect you, all right? Um, but what Satan, it's an interesting thing. Think about Christ's temptation, because he told Satan to just buzz off. Yeah, he could have just saw him buzz off. And Satan would have left him, right? But he didn't. Why didn't he? He needs to use Satan. That had to be fulfilled. Because he, his role was what? To be a slave. To be a slave, right? So... As a slave, he took on himself our form. How would, how would we have to deal with Satan in those situations? Can you tell Satan to buzz off? We can tell him that. He's not going to listen to you. You can't tell Satan to buzz off. You can't tell him to get lost. You can't. No, because... Yeah, well, no. I'm sorry, not even Joyce can do that. God can. God can. I can't. I don't have authority... And we're going to talk about this. We're talking about spiritual warfare. I don't innately have authority as a Christian. Just order demons and order Satan and order... That, that's not... Christ didn't do that. How did he handle Satan? He used the Word of God. How do you handle Satan? Or how should you handle Satan? Use the Word of God. Submit yourself to God. And that's what... In fact, by the way, that, that's really the... If you want to know a key verse of spiritual warfare, it's James. Submit yourselves to God... Resist the devil. He'll free from you. But what do you got to do first? Submit. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. God takes care of Satan for you. You don't need to take care of Satan on your own. We'll talk about that when we get to the spiritual warfare. But in Christ's case, Christ voluntarily, willfully became a servant, a slave. And as a slave, he gave up certain prerogatives, certain um, rights that he had. All right. Did he have authority over Satan and demons? Yes, but he did not always exercise that. He exercised his authority under whose authority? The Father's. And in fact, you see this in the temptation because instead of doing what Satan wanted to do, well, if you're hungry, make these stones bread. Now, could he have done that? Sure, he could have done that. He could have done that anytime he wanted to. He's God. He could do what he wanted to. And nobody could say, wait a minute, you're not allowed to do that. Right? Because he's God. But in the form of a servant, he subjected himself to the provision of the Father. Right? So he said, I'm going to wait until the Father provides for me. And did the Father provide? Well, yeah, because at the end of the, the um, temptation right here in wilderness, the angels came and ministered to him in the wilderness. He submitted himself to the plans of God. Alright? Follow what's going on here? Is he God? Sure he is. But in his role as a slave, 
he gave up his prerogatives to live like one of us, to be an example to us. So if you want to know how to handle Satan, how did Christ handle Satan in the temptation? He quoted scripture. He appealed to God's provision. All right, God will take care of me. It's in God's time. And uh, that's how. And I like the way Vance Havner said it. If Christ could defeat, defeat the devil with three verses from Deuteronomy, what should you be able to do with the whole Bible? All right. So we gotta think about that. Um, they ministered to Christ in the garden. When was that? Well, prior to his crucifixion, when he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, the agony of facing the cross. And by the way, that agony was not the physical torture. It was the separation from God that was looming. That was the torture to Christ. You know, as people that are bound by time, we think it was the torture of the cross, the horror of the agony of the pain, the physical pain and torment. That's not what really bothered Christ. That that wasn't. That That was nothing compared to being for the first time in eternity separated from the Father. And by the way, that's, not, that's something we're not going to even understand when we get to heaven to fully comprehend what Christ went through on the cross. That was the torture of the cross. It wasn't the physical agony. It was the separation from the Father. And they ministered to Him prior to that. Um, they rolled away the tombstone. Remember the two angels came down and rolled away the tombstone and sat on it. And they were seen by people who saw two men in bright robes. Again, every time you see angelic beings, a lot of times it's bright, they're shining, they're glorious, there's the glory there. Um, They announced the resurrection to the women, remember? What are you doing here? He's risen. You should have caught on to that. I mean, Christ only predicted his resurrection on multiple occasions. And nobody caught on to it until after the fact. And then in Acts 1, 10-11, when Christ ascends into heaven, what do two angels do? Yeah, what are you doing standing up staring? He's going to come back the same way he went up. So don't let anybody give you this spiritual you know, second coming mumbo jumbo that the liberals want to do. Well, Christ comes again when he comes in your heart. You know, that kind of stuff. Look, how did Christ go up? Physically. How's he going to come back? Physically. All right? So don't let anybody schnooker you into thinking that somehow it's a, it's a spiritual second coming. It's a physical one. What do angels do in heaven? Worship God. Um, what does it mean to worship? Praise. Praise. Adoration. Honor. Um, Tribute worth to somebody. See, one of the things, and I know there's a lot of discussion on, on this whole thing, but some people say, well, worship is just singing. You know, when we go to service on Sunday morning, there's the worship part and then there's the sermon part that we slog through. Um, look, it's all worship. It's worship from the time you walk in the doors to the time you leave. It's all worship. And, and, and quite honestly, between you know, the way I view it, the most important part of the worship service isn't the singing, it's the preaching, the proclamation of the Word because that's when you get a good focus on God. That doesn't mean singing is bad or anything. Don't go there. It's just that worship, our our whole life should be an act of worship, right? What is that? That's just ascribing glory to God, showing, you know, reflecting a little bit of His glory, like a little mirror will reflect reflect some of the blinding light of the sun. We reflect God's 
character to those around us. That's worship. Our whole life should be one of worship. All that you are, all that you're preaching, all that you're delivering now. This is worship here. This is worship here. You know, you worship God when you exercise your spiritual gift. That's worship. All right. Um, in fact, Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, for this is your reasonable service. The word for service there, latruo, is worship. All right. I mean, it was the same word used when the priests sacrificed animals. Worship. Our life is worship. And what are you going to do in heaven? Heaven revolves around the throne of God. It revolves around God's presence. And all of heaven is focused in on it. That's, what, that's why heaven is a place of constant worship. And you see that in Revelation. You know, in Revelation chapter 4, John is brought up to heaven. And what's his first vision when he gets to heaven in Revelation 4? What's heaven busy doing? Worshiping. Now, you figure with everything going down on earth that there'd be, you know, crisis mode up there. DEFCON 5, you know, lights blazing. No, it's peace. And heaven is calm. During the tribulation, when God's wrath is falling, heaven is calm. It's worship. God's on the throne. There's nothing to worry about. So what angels do in heaven is they worship God. They constantly worship God. They ascribe glory to Him. Um, Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The four, in 20, the four creatures, what do they do? They're falling down and worshiping Him who sits on the throne along with the four and twenty-four elders. It's worship. And people misinterpret that and it's going to be so wondrous and glorious that we're not going to notice time passing. We're not going to... There's not going to be any of that. You know, it's not going to be, you know, on, you know, on the five millionth verse of Just As I Am or something like that. Around the time. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be, it's, it's totally different. It's totally different. And uh, it's worship, it's calm, it's enjoying the relationship with the Father and with the Son and with other people, with the redeemed. And you're still learning. And you're never going to get to the point where you know it all. That's what Colossians says. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's, that's what worship is. Your whole life should be one of worship. And so, so what we do as, as Christians is we compartmentalize it. I worship on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, forget it. That's not worship. You know, you worship God when you do a good job at your place of employment. That's worship. When you care for somebody around you. When you, yeah. I mean, a whole life should be one act of worship. And, and that's what... That's what the Bible calls us to be, to worshipers. And in heaven, there's the unhindered worship of God and the angelic beings worship Him constantly because of who He is. Two things. One about worship, one about the shining. First of all, worship, whether people think of it as the singing and then now it's the sermon or whether you more correctly think of it as all of that, it's none of that unless it's sincere. You can be uttering the words and sitting there with your face in the direction of the preacher 
neither of which is worship if it's not truly worship, mm-hmm. truly sincere, uh, your heart's in it. So uttering the words of a song isn't necessarily worship unless your heart's there. Second thing, the shining, meaning the glow, the light. Um, the angels were glowing because of having been in the pre- always being in the presence of God, which carries over to people who have come from darkness to light, who have now accepted the Lord, who are now uh, in love with you know that newness of life. They are glowing. They are shining. Uh, there is a sense in which people can say there's a glow about you, mm-hmm. you know. So it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, finally about shining, about light. Jesus, the first four days of creation. The fourth day is when the sun, moon, and stars were created. The first four days, the first started with let there be light, and there was light. Who was it? It was Jesus. Revelation 21, 22, talk about there will be no need for the sun or the moon, for the Lamb is the light thereof. Mm. Jesus will be the light at the end. He was the light at the beginning. Thus, every thing, every person that comes, every angel, every being into his presence or has his presence in them is going to glow. Yeah. Darkness to light. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful way to understand it. I like what Vance Havner said when he talked about worship. He says the biggest group of liars you'll ever find in one location is a church congregation singing all the Jesus I Surrender on Sunday morning. When they don't mean it. That's what you mean. You know, it's from your heart. And that's the kind of worship God wants. God does not want two-bit worship. He wants you to worship from the heart. You know, he he wants you to be engaged in that. In heaven, the angels worship. They observe the people of God in heaven. What are they observing? You know, the angels are trying to figure out the salvation thing. They don't get it. They don't understand why God would be gracious. Because it says in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, they look into, when it's talking about salvation, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, it talks about they inquire into salvation. They, they don't, you know, they, they don't quite understand this whole thing. In fact, if you had, Christ said, I have 12 legions of angels all ready to come to my defense. What does that imply about the angelic um, mindset at the crucifixion? They're ready to stop it. And they didn't. I think it's 110. It's 1 Peter 110. 112. 112, somewhere around in there. It's right. Of what salvation angels inquire and search diligently. No, maybe maybe it's... Okay. Okay, I was a verse off. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, to them, the whole, gospel, the whole salvation is a mystery. And it's interesting, in, Re- in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says that we are God's trophies to display His grace throughout all of eternity. Grace to who? Well, not only to us, but the angelic beings to exhibit His grace. They observe the people of God. Um, they inquire into God's plans. Um, and, and many times they, they communicate those plans. All right? They are interpreting God's plans, um, especially in Daniel chapter 9, Zechariah, we have them. 
They rejoice in the works of God. What does it mean to rejoice in the works of God? They enjoy existence. They enjoy what God has created. They're, you know, they're, they're, do you enjoy what God has created? I mean, someone asked me, you know, just as sort of side, they'd say, you know, Alan, how do you worship God? Well, you know, how do you worship Him? You know, there are different ways that, that we express worship. My number one expression of worship is to hear the Word of God preach. That, for me, that's, that's the number one for me. Number two is exercising my spiritual gift. And number three is going for a walk in the mountains. All right? And then after that comes the singing and the choirs and things like that. But, I mean, I just enjoy going out in the mountains and just seeing what God has created. And I often take a walk and I just, you know, I'm talking to God and saying, you know, talk about the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of what he has created and, and the ability that I have to see it and to appreciate it and to enjoy it. That's part of worship. You know, that, that's what worship is all about. It's just talking about God's greatness and wonder and creative powers. and They rejoice in the works of God. Yeah. Just tell them how gorgeous and wonderful He's created. You know, God created a world of, you know, mud. It could have created you without color vision, right? But He didn't. He created you. And I, I remember looking out and seeing a beautiful sunset and just praising God about the beauty of the wonder of seeing a glorious sunset. Or a sunrise, and About the rainbow. and the rainbows, and yeah. I mean just the beauty of His creation, and, and the angels do that. They they worship God on the beauty of what He has made, and God's. We haven't seen anything yet. Well, we're seeing a lot now with the corruption of our food. Wait till you get to heaven, and then you'll really see the wonders of God's creation. Um, in heaven, they perform the will of God. This is interesting. How do they perform the will of God? By What's their attitude? Joyfully. Joyfully, immediately, direct. You know, they don't complain. And that's, that's, I think, what Christ said. um, When we pray the disciples' prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's God's will done in heaven? Yeah. God doesn't say to an angel, you know, I need to do this. And he says, look, I've been doing that for 2,000 years. You get this other guy. (laughs) No. he. It's a joyful thing. Matthew 18, they're, they're observing the face of God, ready to, they're, they're ready to go. As soon as God gives them a nod, they're off. Um, there's, there's an expect, expectancy, there's a joyfulness, there's an immediacy, and there's a joyfulness in their response. They, they, they get their reason for being to do what God wants them to do. Now, compare that to us. Oh man, I really have to go to church, or I really have to do... But there was a time they, when you were a child that you might have been willful, you know, just to, to help your mom or your dad. I don't remember that time, but <laughs> they also here's the other thing, angels witness the wrath of God. Not only do angels witness this is interesting. Not only do angels witnessing the redemption of man, but throughout all of eternity, what are they going to witness? The wrath of God on the unbelievers. Revelation fourteen um, 10 says, The smoke of their torment, that of the unbelievers, sends up forever and ever before the throne of God and before the Holy angels. Alright? Now, the Bible, nowhere does it say that in eternity future we're going to be observing the agonies of the damned. The angels are. They're going to see that. They're going to be witnesses of not only of God's grace to us, but of God's wrath on the unbelievers. Even in eternity. eternity. Revelation 14.10 talks about the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever before the throne of God and before the holy angels. Alright? 
We're not going to see that, but evidently the angels are. Verse of that chapter, now that you brought that up, it's always confused me because it made it sound like, uh, yeah, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. And I wondered if that meant that the redeemed would be the people who would look upon. No, in eternity future, it's the angelic beings that will see that. We won't, I don't think. And that's, you just read Revelation 14.10, brings that out. What's their ministry? We've got to run the, almost down to the end here. What's their ministry to believers? Um, they inform, instruct, and communicate the will and word of God. We're not going to go through all these verses. I wish we could. Um, but angelic beings in a lot of the, uh, when, when God is revealing truth in the Old Testament, especially in Zechariah and Daniel, it's angels who are helping to interpret the visions and dreams that are being seen there. You see those Zechariah women at the tomb, Philip, um, Cornelius, um, John, Paul, all of them. Um, there's angels involved when God is revealing truth to them. And in fact, in John and Revelation, John has various angelic beings come up and say, well, what are you seeing? What do you think? What you, what's going on? Let me explain this to you. Come, let me show you the judgment of the great whore, Revelation 17.1. So angels are involved in revealing um, truth. They protect us. They comfort us. That's interesting. There's a comforting part of that. Um, in Elijah's case, at the end of his run, he was comforted. They deliver. This is interesting. Uh, remember when Peter was in prison? And the angels came and delivered him out of prison? Took him out? Um, do they always deliver everybody? No, but in God's providential care and plan, sometimes God calls an angel to deliver they minister to believers at the moment of death. This is interesting. Luke 16:22. The Lazarus was taken by the angels in Abraham's bosom. We don't know what all of that means, but evidently there's a ministry at the point of death that we will see angels. What's their ministry to the lost? They uh, judge the Egyptians. Remember? They judged the Sodomites. Two angels came down. Remember, and they went into Sodom and they took a lot out, and the angel said, we have come down to destroy Sodom. And they took Lot out. They judged the Assyrians. Remember, how many angels did it take to kill 186,000? One. The angel of the Lord went out. They judged Herod. Remember when Herod stood up and everybody said he was a god? What happened to him? By an, by an angel. God will send angels to execute his judgment. Again and again, God uses angels as executors of His judgment. During the tribulation, they're pretty busy. Uh, four angels hold back the four winds. They pronounce the seven trumpet judgments. Remember, four, seven angels come out and each one blows a trumpet. In uh, Revelation 12, 7-8, which we're going to look at in depth later on, they cast Satan out of heaven. They also fly in the midst of heaven. Remember that three angels fly proclaiming the eternal gospel. And one of them says, if you take the mark of the beast, you are going to be faced with unquenchable fire. They announce the fall of Babylon. There's a rejoicing in heaven when God judges Babylon. I'm hurrying through this so we get through it. Um, they'll pour out the seven bowl judgments. The seven vials. Some, some, these are shallow bowls. And they... Pour those out. They're going to be executors of judgment there. Um, they announced the Battle of Armageddon. 
They called up birds of the heavens together to eat the flesh of captains and mighty men. Remember? They accompany Christ on His second coming. They're going to be part of the heavenly entourage. We ride back with Christ, but we don't get to fight. We don't have to fight the battle because who does the fighting? He does. The sword that goes out of His mouth. He does all the fighting. We just get to observe. You know, it's sort of like going into a massive battle and the general does all the fighting and you just as a private just walk along and observe what's going on. I mean, that's what's going to happen here. They gather the lost for hell. Remember the parable of the tares. They're going to gather to wheat into the barn and the tares are going to be thrown into hell. They go through the dragnet. Remember, they, catch, they, they take the fish and put them in the vessels and the rest of the stuff they throw away. Revelation 20.01, they bind Satan in the abyss. Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years um, and not be able to tempt and deceive. What's their destiny finally? Well, they'll spend eternity in the New Jerusalem with the redeemed. They're going to be there with us in all of eternity. They're going to, what are they going to be doing? What are we going to be doing? You know, the Bible doesn't really tell us all the details of what we're up to other than we're going to be worshiping God forever and enjoying His presence. What could be better than that, right? Whatever it is that God has for us is going to be a wonderful thing. And they're going to be there with us. We're going to enjoy the company of angels um, in heaven. And they will learn of God's grace through all of eternity. In what sense? They're going to look at us and they're going to observe God's grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. They're going to look at the loss and observe God's justice and wrath and condemnation. And for all of eternity, they're going to be trying to sort that one out. And they're not going to get there. Any more than we're going to understand fully God. <laughs> Alright, well that's angels. Next week, we're going to pick up on demons, then we're going to look at Satan. Okay. Alright? And then we're going to do a probably a two or three week series on the whole concept of spiritual warfare and how that's fought through the Scripture. So let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day you've granted to us. Thank you for this time we've had to study your word. Help us to remember it. And Father, we thank you that Although we don't know what all the angels are up to, we do thank you that you are in charge of them and we thank you that you often use them to protect us in ways that we don't even understand. And we just thank you for that, Father. And thank you for your grace to us in Christ's name. Amen.